Greetings, Australia. Welcome to the Stand Up Australia podcast, Stand Up Sits Down With, a contrarian conversation rebutting the mainstream narrative. Each week, we discuss and deconstruct the most relevant news stories in Australia and around the world. You may have missed you in the past week and separate the BS and propaganda so you can make better decisions about which way you want to go politically and personally. So today on the show, Queensland hands over $200 million taxpayer-funded quarantine camp back to Wagner after it houses less than 700 people over the pandemic. Not the Babylon Bee, Albanese under fire for statement of fact. Dr. Tedros and the WHO call an end to the pandemic. Ivermectin ban lifted and Australian government hit with massive class action over COVID vaccines and a big week for COVID news. And our final story of the evening is 2023's banking crisis is now officially worse than the collapse of 2008. Where's all the mainstream news coverage? We're joined for the second time today by Michael Kalauti. Yep, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was trying. I was supposed to ask you how to pronounce it again because I'm terrible with that. No, it's uh, it's uh, one of those names that gets pronounced all kinds of ways. And yeah. when I hear someone stumbling over a name, I know it's mine. Yeah. <laughs> My name. We just uh, we just go with. Yeah, that's okay. The same as same as you now. When my yeah. wife when my wife married me. Um, she was just like, yeah, it's it's not phonetically correct the way you say it. So, yeah. <laughs> so now I just accept anything, to be honest. Um, so today we're actually doing our first video version of the podcast too. So welcome. And uh, this is what we look like. So I hope, hope we're not too shocking for you. Um, but Michael, how's everything going? Um, yeah, let us know what's going on in your world since last time we spoke. Everything, everything's good, Mitch. It's um, good to talk to you again. Um you know, things in the generally referred to the awake movement, if you like, is uh, progressing very well. You know, lots and lots of conversations being had with people and some of the topics I think we'll be talking to today, uh, you know, go off in that same vein of people waking up to what's happening in their world with their the people who are supposed to be governing them and the deals that happen behind the scenes. So I'm uh, keen to have a good chat about it. Yeah. yeah, plenty of plenty of deals behind the scenes. So um, <laughs> our first story has actually uh, got to do with that. I'm just going to share my screen here. Um, here we are. All right, you can see that. Oh yeah, this is the um, uh, yeah <laughs> government building uh, spending yep. two hundred million dollars to build a quarantine camp and then just handing it over to somebody else to make the money out of it after taxpayers have paid to build it. Definitely. So Queensland hands over $200 million quarantine camp. So this is the quarantine camp that was built in just out of Toowoomba um, at Well Camp, which is a pretty apt name for what it was used for. It kind of sounds like something out of 1984. Um, yeah. So Australia's Sunshine State has given away a $220 million taxpayer-funded quarantine facility after it housed just 730 travellers over a 14-month period. The cost equates to around $300,000 per person. The Queensland Labor government will return control of the facility to the Wagner Corporation upon the expiration of the lease. This is not the same Wagner um, that is the military operation in Russia. Whoever's there is a bit of confusion with that, so it's not uh, the yeah. same group. Um, so uh, this is the worst decision ever made by a state government on behalf of taxpayers, Deputy Opposition Leader Jared Belize told the Courier-Mail. 
Um, I'm not sure if it's the worst, but it's pretty bad. There's been some pretty terrible uh, decisions made over the last three years we can talk about. But it ends up being a $500,000 a day checkout bill that could have helped Queenslanders in the middle of a cost of living crisis. So you're talking 730 people, um, $220 million, and now that's just being given back to Wagner. So um, I'm not sure what you think about this, but it kind of stinks. To be honest, it kind of just stinks of this was the plan all along. Maybe they've sort of greased the wheels a little bit, Wagner. We do know there is this uh, private-public par- partnership going on with governments around the world, especially in Australia. And the corruption I've seen lately has just been terrible. So yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? You know, they, they live these so-called private-public um, partnerships where the public has really no transparency to understand what sits at the heart of these deals. And as you say, the, the, the taxpayer has shelled out $200 million to build it. Taxpayers on the foot for that interest or for that money, and now a private group will operate it. Supposedly, they'll be trying to make a profit out of it. And what have they actually paid for that asset? What what is the deal? Where does that taxpayer recoup the money? And and we've seen this for well over a generation, where the government just claims, oh, it's a public-private partnership, and there are um, I can't remember the phrase they use, commercial incompetence. You know, there's all these commercial incompetence clauses that prevent the public from having any true understanding of the financial um, ramifications of what's gone on and who, who took off with the public's money. We see it all the time. And then we wonder why there's so much debt in our, in our government. It's not really Stunning. something we can afford to have happen, is it? Um, you know, there's been well, there's been calls for Anastasia Palaszczuk to or the Chook, as we call her here, to apologise. Um, I'm just going to play this little clip here. We've got from Seven News. There are fresh calls tonight for the Premier to apologise over the cost of WellCamp. Now that the keys to the mothball facility are being handed back, taxpayers footed the more than two hundred million dollar bill. But Anastasia Palaszczuk is doubling down on that decision. Unlocking a political slinging match over WellCamp. WasteCamp. This was one of the worst decisions this Palaszczuk Labor government have ever made. More interested in props than policies. The state government is tonight handing the keys for the $220 million taxpayer-funded quarantine centre back to the Wagner family as a lease on the 1,000-bed privately owned Toowoomba site expires. Cost Queensland taxpayers $500,000 a day. Finally admit you got it wrong. The opposition has asked you to apologise for the spend, will you? Uh, let's be very clear here. WellCamp was built during COVID when our hotels were packed. Everybody knew that and we needed a facility. But after only hosting around 730 people and once restrictions lifted, debate raged on how else the white elephant should be used. There are some really interesting ideas. Whatever those ideas were, they never happened. An investigation into WellCamp will be released soon, with the Auditor-General's report aimed to be tabled in Parliament in May or June. John Wagner telling Seven News his plans for the site are unchanged, looking at moving in agricultural workers to relatively untouched housing paid for by Queenslanders. Sally Guyt, Seven News. Yeah, so it's just it's just complete madness. Yeah. Um, 
they said, oh, we we built it during the during COVID. It was wasn't even during the start of COVID. It was it was towards the end. Um, whether you believe that was a thing in the first place, I definitely don't believe it was something that was worthy of building a uh, quarantine camp. Um, there's no way in my mind, unless we're dealing with absolute imbeciles, that they thought this would be used for any more than about three or four months. Because if you understand anything about the the evolution of viruses, you know that they get, you know, progressively less deadly over time. Not that this really ever was that deadly to begin with. But for me, this just screams out uh, corruption and I doubt we'll ever see them being... Um, being you know having facing any sort of criminality from this no there won't be any true investigation until the royal commission start and who knows when that's going to be but it's going to happen at some point you know all of the dodgy deals that were done and the you know there are some of the other stories we'll talk about later and, and we all are familiar with we we all know until there are some proper inquiries into what went on Nobody's going to answer any questions. As you see Palaszczuk there, she gets stopped by a reporter and they just answer with complete nonsense. And these people need to be answering in, in front of inquiries where they can't dodge these questions. Yeah, we just hope it's an independent um, inquiry when it does happen. Um, just a side note here as well, this is the guy who was at the start is actually the deputy leader of the of the Liberal Party up here. Well, I had no idea right. who he is. Um this is just oh, we still far. have liberal parties. Fucking, <laughs> yeah. This is how far the liberal party's fallen. Like every time you hear the the deputy of the opposition party, you're like, well, who's that? They've just got they've yeah, got, the, they've got the no um, no coverage anymore. No, we're the same here at WA. I mean, the liberal party's fallen so far, but our second our opposition party officially here is the national party because the liberal party the nationals have got more seats in in the government than the liberal party. It's it's just a complete shambles. Yeah, well, I think you're dealing with a bit more of a conservative party, aren't you, with the Nationals? They kind of they do kind of more stick to what they believe in. Yeah, they do. And, and, and in WA, at least, the, the Nationals actually are a bit more of a voice of reason than the Liberal Party have become. Yeah, well, you know, when you've got your complete monopoly of Labor Party over there, like the rest of Australia has at the moment, there's no surprise that that's happening. Yeah. Right, so unless you've got anything more to add about that story, um, we'll move on to the next one. No, move on, mate. Go, go to the next one. All right, so this is the first time I've really brought the whole trans issue up on this. Oh, actually, we have talked about it in the past, but um, I think, that, to be honest, I think this whole thing's a massive distraction. Um, but there is some ridiculous stuff that tends to be sort of brought out of people, especially people in power, which is why I put this in today's podcast because for the fear of of saying the wrong thing people in power tend to just go along the narrative even though it's completely yeah. completely anti-scientific um and we've seen in the last week piers morgan interview anthony albanese and he's criticized for transgender comments and piers morgan interview so i'm going to play this section of the interview first and then we'll discuss it The New Zealand Prime Minister, New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, um, was asked to define a woman, and he said, "Well, people identify for themselves." He couldn't answer, and it was excruciating to watch, to be honest with you. And this has been a, a sort of hot potato question for world leaders 
What is a woman, Prime Minister? An adult female. How difficult was that to answer? Not too hard. Uh, I was asked. Uh, I was asked during the campaign, actually. But um, I think that um, you know we we need to. I, I think I, I respect people for whoever they are, mm. and it's up to people to uh, you know to be respected. And and I know that uh, there is uh, some. Controversy can come at times like that, and, and I'm not uh, a fan of uh, some of uh, the campaign. There was recently a very controversial visit uh, in Australia that was designed to uh, stir up mm. issues. And people who are, you know, young people coming to terms with their identity and who they are, I, I think that. Uh, they need to be respected as well. But well, what would you do, for example? With this I'll leave that one there. Um, yeah. yeah. He's, he's obviously looks quite uncomfortable saying what he said just there. Very, but, very, yeah. But I do, I do respect that he said it, to be honest. I'm not a fan of the Labor Party or Albanese. I actually, to be honest, I actually think Albanese kind of looks like a, a reasonably nice person. Um, I'm not sure if you've met him or you have the same opinions. No, but, look, I'm I'm sure he is a very very nice bloke. <laughs> Just not the sort of bloke I want leaving the country. No, no, I mean, uh, I think um, we heard that um, said recently. I can't remember who said it. Um, Pauline Hanson, it was. That's right. Said, "Oh, Albanese is one of the nicest people you meet, but you yeah. know he's great to have a beer with, but you wouldn't want him leading your country." Um, but this here, you know, he's. He's come out and said, "What is this? Is this shouldn't even be news, in my opinion? Like, no, what is right. a woman? A woman is an adult female. This is this yeah, is this. how does this become a question? It's you know, it's just such a distraction. I mean, that's the way I see this whole issue. To be honest, it's it's just a distraction. It's there to distract us from the real issues that we need. We should be focused on politically. And, and I wonder with a with Albanese being able to answer that so directly, or at least his first statement, and then he mumbles around a bit, but whether that is a change or a sign of a change, I mean, I, I feel that this this issue has kind of peaked and rational people have now come on board and are pushing back against the whole ideology for, for what it is. I mean, most people I know, have no issue whatsoever with trans people or homosexual people or any people, their lifestyle. But I, I saw a meme recently. It was if you want to, if you want to call yourself a woman, that's totally your business. But it's totally my business whether I want to call you a woman. You know, and that, I think that's where the issue should be left. Be who you want to be. Knock yourself out. Definitely, definitely. I agree with you there completely. And he goes on about that a little bit at the end. Um, and I think we should respect people that want to be called a woman if they, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of mean you are one. And the person who he was referring to, who stirred up controversy here and hate what he was saying was Posey Parker, who came here and New Zealand, who got violently attacked yeah. in New Zealand by trans activists, um, who was saying no more than we need to respect that we have fought for women's rights for so long and they're being taken away from women right now in the form of trans athletes going into yeah, women's totally. sport. 
Um, there's nothing controversial about that. But you're right. This is this is why we haven't spoken about this in length on this podcast because it is a massive distraction, and people need to realize that while this is going on and we're discussing what is a woman, there's all these injustices. Like our last story, they get giving away two hundred twenty million dollars worth of taxpayers' monies to a to a private corporation. There's open fascism in our in our society being being practiced by the people in charge, and we're talking about this crap. Yeah, totally. And, and and this is what governments do. They they throw these things out there so that we are focused and concentrating on talking about non-issues or issues that really don't affect very many lives while the business of government goes on doing whatever it's doing behind the scenes, changing legislation to the advantage of this corporation or that corporation while we're arguing about what is a woman. And whether, you know, there's a various male swimmers that hold the record in women's swimming events and all across the world this, happening, this is happening. And it's such an interesting thing to look beyond to see what's really going on while we're all focused on this issue. Um, one thing I've seen trending recently is this idea of woman face. I mean, nobody would dress up in blackface today and yet it's acceptable for males to dress up as women and for everyone to celebrate that. I'm sure in time it will be looked on in exactly the same way as blackface, but this is a completely unacceptable thing to do. <laughs> so yeah. let's wait and see. Let's wait that's, and see. I haven't heard that uh, that term before, women first, but, yeah, that's that's just crazy, isn't yeah. it? What, what a time we live in right now, isn't it? Oh, yeah. A distraction every five minutes. <laughs> yeah, we've got real news. We've got real news stories going around. You know, the the the, the Americans blew up a pipeline in Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's multiple things going on. There's Joe Biden being corrupt, openly corrupt. There's his son with his laptop, yeah. and you don't hear anything about this. No, um, you don't hear any of it. No, one, one more thing we haven't heard, Michael, is uh, this week, We've seen the removal of ivermectin from the ban list uh, in Australia. So this starts our little COVID section here. Uh, when I mean little, I'll actually mean quite large. We've got a few things to talk about. So here's our little article here. Ivermectin ban ended by Australian regulators have been warning it should not be used as COVID treatment. So this is from The Guardian. And once again, I remind everyone that all our notes are in the show notes. If you want to read these for yourself, which I really do recommend you do. So the Therapeutic Goods Administration has ended a ban on off-label prescriptions of antiparasitic drug ivermectin nearly two years after the floods of people attempted to procure the drug in the mistaken belief it would treat COVID-19. So I've got um, some research coming up and a couple of tabs which show the research is actually very, very compelling that it does treat COVID, but um, they are removing it. And I've got the actual official post here from the TGA. They removed the restriction through its scheduling. Um, there is sufficient evidence that the safety risk just here to individuals and public health is low when prescribed by the general practitioner in the current <laughs> health climate. So yeah. this is this is one of the safest drugs in the world to prescribe yeah. to anyone. It's been prescribed yeah. to three billion people real, worldwide. I, I yeah. believe that number's right. And there's been something like five or six deaths that can be attributed from it yeah. over that time. Um, 
there's probably also this is a really well used drug in in Africa, which you can buy over the counter. But one yeah. thing we haven't seen in Africa is a huge, apart from South Africa and parts of Zimbabwe, I think we haven't seen really seen any COVID there. They just haven't cared about it. It hasn't really affected them. And um, I believe personally, I don't have anything to back this up, but I do believe this is from this drug. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, everything you've said there, it was one of those hot button issues at the beginning of COVID, how this drug was banned or people that believed that it was effective. And there were studies from all over the world showing that it was effective. But I think the one that I most was most interested in was uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, who, you know, he, he considered ivermectin and, and he looked at COVID as a multi-stage disease, depending on what um, at what period you were in your infection with it, particularly in the, the earlier variants of COVID, which were more dangerous than what we ended up with. I remember him speaking about this and saying that the I, ivermectin was the most effective treatment at a particular stage of your COVID illness, if you like. And I didn't hear anyone else discussing that, but you hear all the time of a, a particular study being done that showed that it doesn't help. Well, it may not help at stage two or three or four or whatever, but it might be that if it's if you're taking it prophylactically, which a lot of people did, then you didn't get infected at all in the first place. Or if you got infected, it was a very mild illness that progressed from there. So I, I think in time, yeah, I mean, this is probably the first step here in Australia where, you know, the ban's been lifted and now, you know, you can get it and use it. But to see the actual protocol that McCullough was using of different drugs at different stages to manage COVID or serious cases of COVID is a very different thing than just making blanket statements that this drug doesn't help COVID. So, yeah, and very interesting to see what happens here. Whoever says that it doesn't help COVID is just ignoring the evidence because um, can you see what I've shared on the screen right now? Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, so this is uh, C19 IVM. Uh, I think it's also you can get it at um, IVMmeta.com. But yeah. this, is, this is in the show notes too. But these are 96 studies from 1,030 scientists, 135,554 yeah. patients in 27 countries. So yeah, this right. is a meta-analysis of of ivermectin and its effectiveness. Um, and as you can see here, like you were saying before, prophylaxis, we've got an yeah. 80, 85% decrease yeah. in COVID cases. Yeah. Early treatment, when you get COVID, you go to 62%. Yeah. And late is 43%. This is actually for, for deaths as well, by the way. So even at yeah. late, even late stage, you're... This is what the studies say anyway. You know, take yeah. it with a grain of salt if you want. We know what scientific studies are like these days. But um when when yeah, it comes when know. it comes to any when it comes, sorry, Michael, but when it when it comes to any um studies that's where you're actually studying a drug that's no longer being sold as it originally was by drug companies under their copyright, which now this, you know, literally sells for like a 50 cents a pill. I find that's a lot more trustworthy than the ones that the the drug companies are doing as basically a marketing campaign because there's no money oh, in this anymore. Yeah, totally, totally, and that, and 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 you've hit the nail on the head. There's no money to be made out of this. 
they're not going to promote anything that's not going to make them bucket loads of money. I mean, these people are no better than tobacco companies. They'll sell anything. But it is interesting, yeah, the prophylaxis, the 85%. And, and something I looked at there, at the top, the headline there, 63% all studies uh, show that it has a positive benefit. And yet you look at, just to contrast that with things like all the SSRIs, the Prozacs and the all of those kind of drugs are used for depression, they have less efficacy than placebo, and yet they are prescribed all around the world to change of billions of dollars. That's considered to be a, a beneficial enough effect at slightly lower than placebo to have doctors prescribing it. And here this is showing it 63% positive and 85% when used as prophylaxis. It's quite incredible. Yeah, it's it's absolute madness. Um, we've seen the same stuff happening with uh, hydroxychloroquine, which, funnily enough, actually got re- removed from the the banned drugs list last year, I believe, at the end of the year. But that was an easy one to fudge the HCQ because it is quite a toxic drug when given in large amounts. Whereas this one, like you listen to all the guys that prescribe it um, in the US, um, they say basically the more the better. So yeah. I'm not sure how much yeah. you need to take to be toxic, but it's just easy to smear it in the in the media, obviously. Well, I think that was McCullough's statement was, you know, it was such a safe drug that it, they, they bore no consequences for prescribing it to people regardless of what it did, and then that showed that it had a, had a good effect. So I don't know what you do with that information. You just, <laughs> you just hope that at some point the whole truth comes out and... Uh, these people are held to account. Yeah, well, let's let's hope. Um, our next story we've got here is uh, someone who's trying to hold people to account. So the Australian government is hit with class action lawsuit over COVID vaccines and a landmark COVID-19 vaccine injury class action lawsuit has been filed under the, uh, sorry, against the Australian government and medicines regulator. So the nationwide suit, which reportedly has 500 members, including three named applicants, seeks redress for those allegedly left injured or bereaved by the COVID vaccines. So this one is brought to us by Melissa McCann, who was uh, the one of the speakers at the McCullough event recently. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple of clips here. Um, now, this is a long clip, so I'm just going to play the start of it. But uh, yeah. this is from Sky News. 500 Australians have joined a class action lawsuit which is seeking compensation for those allegedly injured by COVID vaccines. The landmark lawsuit has been launched against the federal government, against the TGA and the Department of Health and alleges negligence by the TGA in its approval and monitoring of COVID-19 vaccines. The TGA refutes the claim with their safety report published on the 20th of April, revealing adverse risks are extremely low. Spearheading the case is a brave Queensland GP, Dr. Melissa McCann, and Melissa joins us now. Melissa, great to see you. This is a fascinating story for many, many reasons, but tell us how you got involved and what is how serious is this class action in your view oh thank you so much for having me on the show rowan um so how i got involved in this was 
um, really once I've reached a point of some frustration uh, as, a, as a general practitioner myself, seeing um, patients who had had severe injuries in a very short time frame after vaccines and seeing the difficulties that they were experiencing with having those adverse events properly acknowledged and also receiving compensation for these injuries. And in many cases, these were completely life-changing injuries that required them to undertake expensive further medical tests, um, to be unable to work, and in some cases, unable to care for themselves so that their spouse was also out of work. And, um, you know, these people really have been left for a very long period of time without any help and also without any acknowledgement um, because of these issues around censorship and, um, and really not being able to openly discuss what's happened to them. Rita. And that seemed to be this climate of... So, yeah, that goes on for another seven minutes or so. So we won't play the oh. whole thing. But um, she's doing some great work. And, like, just to make it clear, this is not someone who was vaccine sceptical before this all happened. If you look at her website, she's actually still got the the fact that they are doing the COVID vaccines on there. She hasn't removed it yet. Um, maybe, maybe she has now. This is probably a month ago, last time I checked that. So oh. this is someone who was all for it. She was like, yeah. "Yeah, sweet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help. I'm gonna." Which I think a lot of people were like that in this industry, weren't they? Because they they've been brought up to believe in these sorts of things. So she said enough evidence now to really muddy her name in the medical profession, which which she has with probably her her peers. Um, and she's raised something like one hundred ten thousand dollars so far for this, which isn't a lot of money in the scheme of things uh, for a class action. Not for a class action, no. But whether this goes anywhere, um, it's gotten a lot of mainstream media attention. It was in the Age. I've seen it uh, on news.com.au. Obviously, it's on Sky. They they tend to um, focus on these things a lot more than all the other mainstream media outlets. But yeah, yeah. what um, what what's your opinion on all this? Well, I mean, this is this is the way it's going to go. I mean, if you look at tobacco as a as a parallel, you know, a couple of generations ago, after tobacco companies were selling this product for forever and ever, and claiming that it did no harm and that you know it was people were getting cancer, it was related to stress, it had nothing to do with tobacco. And we have the same thing here. We have governments, we have these companies telling us that. You know, all of these excess deaths have got nothing to do with these vaccinations. It's just so ridiculous when it's there's, there's no other thing it can be. You have people coming out left, right and centre telling you about their vaccine injuries. I mean, I know one person directly whose cousin dropped dead the day after he was vaccinated. That's as close as I've had to, to me personally, uh, someone dying from the vaccination. Within my family, I have multiple females who speak about their periods just going completely whack after being vaccinated and having all kinds of weird, twitchy things going on with them and other people. You know, there's so many things that are happening that you can kind of look at and go, mm, maybe, not sure. But across a population group, it's clear. It's absolutely clear. And yet these companies pretend that there's no link. And yet you take the Pfizer documents, you know, that famous case that Aaron Siri prosecuted to have all those documents released. I think Naomi Wolf 
is in the process at the moment of getting a group of people to go through the documents that have been released so far to produce a report with something like 375,000 pages to go through mm. of highly technical information mm. that needs to be passed and, and condensed. But some of what's already come out of that makes it absolutely clear and unequivocal that Pfizer knew. Pfizer knew what to expect in introducing these vaccines into the population too early. And I think the governments that wanted to do it, um, they gave the indemnity so that Pfizer, once Pfizer's off the hook, as far as the indemnity is concerned, they don't care. They're just going to make money out of it. And the governments have waived their legal liability. So it's going to be very interesting to see what the future brings in that regard. But as far as what I think about this court case, it's the first of many, many, many such court cases until such time as they start becoming more and more successful. And that was the pattern with um, with asbestos. That was the pattern with tobacco. That's been the pattern with so many drug prosecutions and until you get to a critical mass, if you like, of, of the evidence being supportive of it and courts finally awarding compensation to those victims. That's okay. what we're going to see. Yeah, I think you will see that, to be honest. I've noticed uh, with the normies in my life, um, not, they don't, they don't, one, they don't want to talk about it. Um, yeah. Whenever something does come up, um, it's, you know, not to, let's not talk about that um, because, I mean, you know, for one, you've got to feel sorry for a lot of them because they've got this thing in their blood now and um, you don't really yeah. want to be talking about people having heart attacks when you know you've got that in your system, do you? So I do. Yeah. I, I don't like to talk about it with them in, at all, to be honest, either, because I just don't want to rub it in their face. Um, no, I agree. I agree. It's very much that way, particularly you know, your family members and loved ones, for many of us. Yeah, definitely. People are nervous and they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what this has what kind of ramifications this has for the whole vaccine debate, whether this is connected at all. But I've got a story here, and this is the only time I heard about this, and I didn't seem to see it anywhere else. But uh, this is from the Daily Skeptic, and Australia ignores growing evidence of harm to grant full approval to Moderna RNA vaccine. So now this is the only vaccine now in Australia for COVID that's been approved Um yeah, you let's bring the normies up again. They might be pretty um, surprised to hear that, that there is no was no approved vaccine, but they've all been provisionally approved, which is just for emergency use only. So I'm not sure what this means. One thing I probably does mean is that it may or may not open Moderna up to litigation. Um, but at the same time, I think um now it is approved, and that that really falls on the government, doesn't it? Yeah, look, I really don't. Like you, I'm not sure what the legal ramifications of that full approval is. Um, perhaps you get uh, Rebecca on the show, have a chat to her. I'm sure she'd be happy to tell you. Rebecca Barnett. Rebecca Barnett. Yeah, she's coming on the show in a couple of weeks, which is because Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. No, she's great. She's done some amazing work, um, you know, her journalism. One of the very few uh, investigative journalists who's, who's writing this stuff and putting it out there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Rob Robin will probably have a good take on it next week too when I have a chat to her. So yeah. I'll have to bring this up again. But um yeah, look, it's it's um it's gonna be 
a really uh, interesting time now that this is actually, but this is the worst one uh, as far as I know. Is it? Yeah, I mean, this one had the most um, the most uh, adverse reactions. So, anyway, we've got a little got a little excerpt here. Anyway, Pfizer and Moderna um, COVID nineteen vaccines were associated with an excess risk of serious adverse events of special interests of ten and fifteen. So, it was fifty percent more serious adverse re- events than Pfizer. So, fifteen what? per ten thousand vaccinated over placebo baselines, right. and that was in their own study. Is Moderna the company that's actually signed a contract to build a vaccine manufacturing facility here? Yeah, so Moderna's got a really checkered history. So Moderna never, ever, never, ever had a a viable product before this. They (laughs) are closely aligned with the Defence Department in the United States and were given the mRNA technology by DARPA. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and then it goes even deeper than that. You've got Stefan Bansal, who is the... Um, well, was I think now is the I think he was the CEO. I think recently stepped down and sold sold like five hundred million dollars in shares. Um, he was the head of a another pharmaceutical giant called Biomaru, which is a a French company. Biomaru were one of the signatories, one of the one of the funders of the Wuhan lab where the yeah. virus is rumored to have come from. And then you've got even goes even deeper after that because they've found that the sequencing in the Moderna vaccine is well, I'm not sure if it's the actual vaccine itself, but the sequencing that they've used in the past is exactly the same as the ancestral ancestral strain of COVID nineteen. Wow. Well, SARS CoV two, sorry, not COVID nineteen. <laughs> yeah. So very very tied up. In all this, so um, yeah, it may it goes very deep if you want to. Um, and this is all documented fact. This is not conspiracy theory, anyone. So if you want to look that up, I'll try to find the the article that I've read on it. But it's it's very um, it's very easy to find if you look in the right place. Um, yeah, and then one more thing to add to that is that DARPA apparently were have given the Wuhan lab and people. Um, associated with up to $40 million as well. So, um, yeah, make of that what you want. Oh, yeah. <laughs> $40 million pocket change in US politics. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of, there was a lot of hoo-ha made about the the money that, that Fauci's NIH gave to the Wuhan lab, well, gave to um, EcoHealth Alliance. But um, when you really look into it, the Defence Department itself gave a lot more to EcoHealth and, um, and, and the Wuhan lab directly. So... Um, you just don't hear it talked about much. Yeah, you. Uh, yeah, there's so many threads to this thing, and and you could, and I'm sure, and I've met these people. I'm sure you have too. That people are just totally consumed by this. There is so much to know. So many threads you can pull on any one thread and go. Yeah, you, know, you can spend the rest of your life researching any one thing. Um, so deep. You certainly can. You, you pull too many threads as well, Michael. You're going to ruin your sweater, aren't you? So you've just got to kind of uh, just give it a break for a while. You're not going to get too far with the yeah, stuff. And, and ultimately, you, you don't necessarily need to. You can sort of look at what's happened, take a very um, macro view. We had this illness, which now nobody really debates that it was from gain-of-function research out of the Wuhan lab. And you can look at a fork in the road there, whether or not you think there's a deliberate leak or an accidental leak. 
Um, you know, that's an open question, I suppose, at this point. But from that, we then have a global pandemic declared by the WHO. From that, we have these vaccines that are created in record time, you know, change the definition of vaccine and the technology that's being used. But there's no question that they could never have been tested thoroughly. It's then released into a global population who now is experiencing 25, 30, 35% increase in all-cause mortality across those populations and multiple unexplained rises in all kinds of illnesses that we've never, ever seen before. You know, it's, it is so obvious, it's unquestionable that these vaccines have done this to people and yet there are still people out there that expect to be able to stand out there in public and deny that there's any link and be taken seriously. Yeah, it's just, it's just A-grade gaslighting, isn't it? It's incredible. Yeah, well, look, one of these one of these events, these gaslighting events, is uh, I'm not sure if you you saw this in the, the paper the other day, but um, unfortunately, I haven't been able to read the source study because it's behind a forty five dollar paywall, and I'm not going to pay forty five dollars for a fraudulent study. <laughs> that might have been the one you sent me. I didn't open it either. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, this has been published in the circulation. Um, journal and it's from Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. So they've found Victorian cardiovascular disease experts have found no association between out-of-hospital cardiac arrests and COVID-19 vaccinations. The study published this week in circulation is one of the larger of its kind thanks to a unique registry set up in Victoria in 2019 to examine out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. So um, I'm just wondering why was that registry set up in Victoria in 2019 to examine out-of-hospital cardiac arrests in the first place? But um, yeah, so this this study is claiming to to say that there's been no increase in cardiac arrest events, even though you've seen on the um, the stats on ABS Australian Bureau of Statistics that there has been an increase in cardiac events. Um, it's mm. also the study goes on to claim that there was, you know, it can the, while the vaccine can cause myocarditis in people, it's generally mild and there's no connection between deaths and myocarditis. But if you look at studies, uh, there's a, I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes, but there was a study that Gerard Rennick um, mm-hmm. published on his Telegram channel the other day, which was one study from 2019 saying myocarditis increases the risk of heart attacks and sudden death. And then now they're trying to say that it doesn't increase sudden death and myocarditis. Yeah, look, it's, it's the tobacco mesothelioma playbook all over again. It's just muddy the waters, release multiple studies. I mean, who paid for the study? Let's let's be honest. Who paid for the study? What was what were the details of the study? I mean, it, we've grown accustomed to this over the years. A, a so-called journalist publishes something here uh, and puts the fact that it came from a study. Well, unless you actually have read the study, you don't know anything other than what's contained in a paragraph or two by a journalist and there people draw a conclusion from without knowing anything about how that study was conducted. But the reality is, is this. If you look across the, Itali- the Australian, sorry, Italian, Australian population, and it's probably the same across the world, there's 10 to 15, maybe 20% of us 
who absolutely refuse to be vaccinated with any of these drugs. That's a significant control group. Now, you can very, very easily, if you really want to answer these questions, conduct a study across those, those two populations of the people in the control group who never had these vaccines and the people that did have one, two, three, or you know, people are lining up for their fifth or sixth, for God knows what reason. But it's very, very easy to conduct that study if you have a genuine interest in knowing the truth. Yeah. But at this point in time, there doesn't seem to be any appetite from any of our governments to know the truth because they're complicit in this debacle. And until such time as we do get a change of government, um, then it's probably never going to happen. But at that point, the study is really easy to do. It's really easy to do. It certainly is easy to do. Um, there's been a couple of independent uh, doctors in the United States who have who have done it for the childhood vaccination schedule because that's uh -huh. one of the things people have been banging on for a long time is just the general childhood vaccination yeah. schedule. Um, and they're saying, let's do it. Uh, Del Bigtree and RFK Jr. got invited to the White House after Trump was inaugurated and spoke with Anthony Fauci and a lot of the other yeah. people there. And they said, this is all we want. We just want this, this study to be done. And they yeah. said, you know, explicitly to them, we'll never do that study. Yeah, well, why not? Yeah. I mean, well, we know, you know, we you know why, don't we? Not the question, like, okay anybody with any common sense understands what that study is going to show you. If, yeah. if there's a significant cohort of the population, you know, if, let's for the sake of the argument, let's say it's 10%. So in the US, that's 30 million people that have never been vaccinated on, according to the schedule. Here in Australia, two and a half to three million people that have never had these vaccines. So you can look at all of these um, childhood illnesses and autoimmune diseases and, and various other things that have been on the rise for a couple of generations. And you could plot those in those two population groups. And it's very, very, very clear. You'll you'll very clearly see whether there's a relationship or not. Yeah. yeah. And of course they don't want to see that. The other thing you also will see in that population group, let's say in Australia it's that two and a half, three million figure. Why did those populations of children not suffer from measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, tetanus, all of these other things they did not receive vaccinations for. You should have seen a massive spike in all of those illnesses in those unvaccinated populations, but you never did. No, you never do. And generally the spikes you see are from the ones that have had the vaccine in the first place. You know, a perfect example is the polio virus, which has been eradicated, they say, but you see massive outbreaks in India and Africa and it's all the vaccine strain of the virus. Yeah, yeah. Well, polio, so, is actually, polio is a bacteria, isn't it? I'm not sure. Not sure. Yeah. Polio, but, I think it's a virus. I think it's a virus. It is? Yeah, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, and, and the fact that, you know, a couple of blokes like you and me are just discussing this topic and it's it's just such an easy thing for anyone to understand, you know, is that anything about the whole notion of, vaccination as a theory and it falls apart under some simple questions and and then you look and you see it's all about the money it's all about you look at that child vaccination schedule and i actually looked at it the other day we were, we were debating what number actually is i think it's like 18 separate injections but in that there's something like it totals up 54 in australia 54 different viruses 
that you are being vaccinated against by the time a child is five years of age. Mm. And yeah. it, but what's the cost of that? I mean, put aside the human cost and the disease cost and all the rest of it, the whole concept of this from a public health perspective is that you, theor theoretically at least, you're trying to reduce the number of children that will suffer that illness. That's that's the benefit of the child. But from a public health perspective, you are reducing the cost of your public health program by all these people not getting sick. And you're willing to pay the cost of the pharmaceutical companies for all these vaccines and, and, and doing it. But have we ever really looked at that cost-benefit analysis? Because if these kids aren't actually getting sick, why are we doing it? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of evidence to say that it causes more sickness and disease yeah. out there. You right. know, there's there's one study that um, I've read in the past. I, I don't ex exactly know what it's called or what journal it's in. Feel free to look it up if you want. Um, now, this says that the getting wild measles virus when you're younger actually reduces your your chance of getting any type of cancer when you're when you're older by something like 70 or 80 percent so wow. you know these these wild diseases can prime your body and there, i mean there is a, a method to nature's madness a lot of the time um so yep. like god and just keep injecting you know what you said 52 different um you know viruses or or bacteria into people's arms yeah. not even that they're and it's know, just any, anyway possible I think the thing that you sort of wake up to, I mean, and look, I've got to be honest, I mean, until COVID came along and this whole vaccine question here, I lined up and let them shoot anything in my arm that the doctor told me I should have. Never, ever, ever questioned it. But I'm talking to my daughter the other day uh, who's just had a child in the last six weeks. I said, if I knew today what I, or if I knew when they were born, what I know today, I would never have allowed my children to be vaccinated. You know, and that's a change in, in me, and I consider myself to be pretty mainstream. But as I say, there's this population out there of two and a half to three million people who have been anti these vaccines for a very, very long time. And I think the general public is moving in that direction rather than the other. And COVID has been the one that has tipped them over the edge and made people look very closely at what the hell is going on. And as you say, we we as a, we as a country, as a population, we now are dealing with record numbers of asthmatics, epileptics, children on the autism spectrum disorder. And and I found out the other day, and I didn't even know this, that you know, Robert Kennedy Jr. was talking about it. You know, children have been or their families have been awarded multiple millions of dollars in the US in courts for proving that link, and yet say that out loud in most places and you'll get laughed at but it's a fact it's an acknowledged fact already yeah there's there's one case in particular there where they said that she um the girl developed autism like disease after having it so they've, they've never really said that it is autism but they've said it's autism like yeah in ways um and i mean over, over three i mean it's probably more now but this is a few years ago now it was three and a half billion dollars worth of payouts have been paid out in the vaccine courts which is really hard to get into i mean yeah 99.9 percent .9 of all cases get thrown out of that thing yeah um but there's there's a clear issue here and when you put on the the top of that the stats in the us are crazy they've got the highest mortality rate for any developed country in the world yeah for for babies and yeah. 
they've got a 3%, I think this is in Australia as well, 3% of all babies that are born will have autism. Yeah, it's staggering. 1 in 28 now. It's gone down from yep. 1 in 45 about five years ago. Yeah. So, But it yeah. won't change until we change government, until people stand up and start to ask questions and we kick corporates out of our government. There will never be the studies to prove these links. No, they won't until until we really start to stand up and just you know say what's what. But you know who knows if that's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Look, the, there is some a little bit of good news if you if you actually believe anything the WHO says. But the WHO this week has declared COVID nineteen is no longer a global emergency, a major symbolic step towards the end of the pandemic. Um, I never like calling it the pandemic. I like calling it the plandemic. But um, the COVID-19 no longer represents a global health emergency. The World Health Organization has said on Friday, a major if symbolic step towards the end of the pandemic that has killed more than 6.9 million people. Well, they say that it's killed more than 6.9 million people, but, mm-hmm. you know. Um, now, Ted Ross has previously um, gone against his people to end the pandemic the last meeting they had i think it was something like 15 to 5 10 to 5 or something like that saying they should end the emergency they have now the thing that worries me about this is the amount of people that go wow yeah the pandemic's over no there were never really was a pandemic and why do we need this body to tell us that the pandemic is over well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> and I'm sure you've asked 50 people, you'll get 50 different answers. I mean, it's just a, it's just an official statement, I guess. And it has political ramifications with who charges who for what and whether under pandemic conditions that these drug companies can be given um, immunity from prosecution, whereas now they may be held to, held to account. But it's so murky what the who does. Why why it does it? You know how how this one particular individual or a handful of indi- individuals can determine what happens to you or I or anybody else living in this country, a supposedly democratic country, is just is stunning. And I think that's another of the lessons that we've all learnt out of COVID is people have to t- take pay far more attention to who's calling the shots and how the hell they got into a position of such authority. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as you, as you know, with the pandemic treaty as well, they're hoping to have a lot more of it. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting when you look at what China's doing behind the scenes and, and how much influence China has in the UN and on, and on who, it, it, it occurs to you that this is one of the ways that China can exert a lot of control in the world. And in some senses, it's their, it's their trump card um, against the U.S. military might in the world. You know, the, the U.S. has such a big role to play in the world. But what's going on in the U.N. is very much controlled by China. And this particular individual, um, I'm not sure where I saw this recently, but his background and how he comes into that role is very much through the sponsorship of the CCP. And You're talking, talking about Tedros? Or? Yeah, Tedros. Yeah, I think no, he, no. he was the previous, um, when he said the funding to the WHO because Bill Gates and Gabby are the, the, the two biggest private financiers 
to the who and yep. he was the previous i think the ceo of the, of gavi or um i don't mm-hmm. think don't think it was a ceo but previous to that he was um the, the leader of a, a terrorist party in somalia i think so um yeah, yeah so it's got a very checkered history and they call him dr tedros he's actually not a medical doctor either yeah no, yeah he just makes so many assumptions until you start looking behind the scenes and and you know 90% of the people in the world never look beyond the headline. And, you know, this Tedros Gabiasis is like, oh, he's the head of, of who? He must be an important person. He must be worthy of that role. But, you know, the, the, the reality is he's there because that's China wants him there because he does what they want done. Yep. Yep. It's the, once again, the, the whoever gives the money rules the world. Yeah. All right. So... I think we're pretty much done with the COVID stuff. So I want to move on now to what's happening behind the scenes. And it's not getting a lot of attention from the mainstream media. So this article here is from Zero Hedge. And I've been following, we spoke about this last time we spoke about the collapse yeah. um, of uh, the sent the California bank. Um, yeah. Silicon Valley bank. Yeah. yeah, Silicon Valley. So the, the headline here is the banking crisis Sorry, the banking collapse of 2023 is now officially bigger than the banking collapse of 2008. So collectively, the three big banks that have collapsed in 2023 had more assets than all 25 banks that collapsed in 2008 did. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, so, so 2008 saw the peak in terms of asset size for bank failures, 373.6 billion with only 25 failures, only in, in quotation marks. While 2010 saw the peak in numbers of banking fails, uh, 157 versus 25 in 2008. So that really shows you what's to come. If we have just started this domino effect of banks failing, and it's directly, obviously, um, uh, related to the the interest rates rising all around the world, because they play with the interest rates too. Not, it's not just people yeah, who yeah. own houses and businesses who can't pay their, their loans. The, the banks themselves can't pay the interest on the loans that they're using. Yeah. So um, there's a little article, there's a little um, graphic here. You can probably see that. Yeah. Um, these are all the banks that failed. There's 2008, wow. it started, and then it was just a domino right after that. So you can see these three big bubbles are here. Yeah, okay. That's already bigger than what's happened here. And as you can see, it took a long time to about 2015 for that to, to finish off. So if this is following the past, um, then we've got a long way to go in this banking collapse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, this is the whole, again, a, an area that every time I've tried to understand banking at, at the macro level, it's just like I just get bewildered by it. It's just, but you end up with central banks. You end up with central banks printing money or allowing governments to print a certain amount of money, which they control behind the scenes for reasons that we, we will never fully understand. I don't know that anybody really does. They play their little part in whichever part they play. And, you know, as, as much as they look like big amounts of money in the whole world, they're really insignificant. And it's almost like we've become used to this. I mean, if you were old enough, as I am, to remember 2007 and eight, which was just like mind-blowing, but in reality, it didn't mean a lot. My life didn't change in any way. 
living here in Australia, it was actually beneficial to me. Interest rates fell. Um, you know, I had secure employment. You know, everything for me personally, it was it was good. Um, and here we are again with banks collapsing. And you look around, you go, well, what does it mean? What does it What does it mean to me personally? It's like well, nothing, nothing. This is just another thing that happens in the world now. Banks collapse and governments throw some money in there and they prop it back up again and life goes on as normal. But at, at some point, there's got to be an impact somewhere. What is it? Central bank digital currency, that seems to be the theory that at some point this banking system collapses and we and, it, and it's buried and it's dead and then, then money becomes the central bank digital currency money that we have to accept because old money's dead and the only way that you can transact is using central bank digital currencies and then we are completely controlled. Now, whether that is something that is planned and orchestrated by the central banks or, and I think last time we spoke, there's, you know, you played a clip and there's people that believe that that is in fact what is happening, that these collapses are being orchestrated or at least if not orchestrated, understood and um, what's the word, encouraged or that certain things that the central banks are doing lead to them becoming more likely to happen. But over the long term, that is the goal. It's to have us all locked into central bank digital currencies that every transaction becomes tracked. Every single transaction is tracked. And with that comes the ability to control you. So if you don't line up to get your vaccination, well, your credit card just won't work. And if you want to go to a protest, the camera that you walk past registers your face and all of a sudden your card doesn't work when you're on the way home and you stop at Macca's. It's just like doesn't work anymore. It can't fill your car up anymore because you are seen by the government as somebody causing trouble and not following the rules. That's what a central bank digital currency means inevitably. Yes, yeah, you nailed it there, Michael. Um, and one thing I've heard a lot about over the last week is with these banking collapses, you're not seeing people losing their their savings. What's happening is the government is now passing that business over to the bigger banks. So JP Morgan mm-hmm. Chase is the one that's just, um, is it First National, the one that just, that just collapsed? Let me have a look at this graphic. Not sure. No, First, First Republic, sorry. First Republic Bank. Overnight, um, customers got an update saying now their login is with JP, JP Morgan Chase. So they've still got their yeah. savings. They've still got their money. It's yeah. It's been funded by the government. It's been given to JP Morgan Chase. So one yeah. prevailing theory right now, and it, it holds a lot of weight with me, is that they they know what's going on. They know the collapse is coming. And they're trying to funnel as much of the private citizens' uh, bank accounts into a couple of big banks. Mm. Because if you only have a couple of big banks who control the whole money supply, it's a lot easier to control those banks. It's a lot easier to put in a CBDC. You're not yep. dealing You're not dealing with thousands of different um, community banks and all sorts of stuff. It's... I think this is what is happening, whether it's by design or whether it's just opportunistic. Um, personally, I think, um, I mean, you, you brought up the 2008 collapse earlier. 
2008, I was a lot younger and a lot stupider, you know, um, <laughs> and I didn't really understand what's going on. It didn't affect me. Um, didn't affect me at all, really. Um, but I think after that, they've tried to mend the the market and it just hasn't happened. They know it's on its last legs and this is the 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 likely sort of trajectory we're going to see now. Yep. It'll happen more and more until such time as the, you know, central bank digital currencies will be issued because if there are runs on banks and they do, at some point they're going to have to allow banks to collapse and that's when people will lose their money, lose their savings potentially. And then the central bank digital currency gets rolled out as the only way that you can then, you'll be issued money by the government, but you'll have to log in, you'll have to accept this system in order to be able to feed your kids and pay your rent, and that's how we will be captured into it. And then, you know, it may take a generation. It may happen in, in a matter of a few years, but it's coming. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a different story, it. too, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's a different story to, like, the, you know, you can really directly tie this to the vaccine mandates because it's easy, easy enough anyway to say no to a vaccine, but when they say you either join this new system where you've got no money, then it's a lot hard. It's a lot harder of a decision, isn't it? Well, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I was put into that position and, you know, I lost a, a very well-paying career and, but I still was able to go and work somewhere else, you know, I had six months out of it and then went back to work somewhere else. I had money in the bank I could still access. I had assets I could sell. Um, but under a central bank digital currency um, model, none of that would have been possible. Now, if you take the longer view, if you're these corporations like BlackRock or whatever, and you take the longer view, it's like during COVID, you know, we were able to sell these vaccines and we made $100 billion or whatever, terrific for all our shareholders. But the next time this happens or the time after that, you know, five to 10 years, we have a central bank digital currency in and something goes wrong and the WHO makes a statement and everybody falls into lockstep. It's like, if you don't get vaccinated, your funds are frozen. That's a very, very different scenario. Very different. You know, and you hear about a lot of people sort of forming these alternative communities and trying to figure out ways to live outside of the current system. The current system is allows that. A central bank digital currency will not allow that. You'll be back to bartering for food and that's it. You won't. There will be no ability to transact in any kind of currency outside of that central central bank digital currency. Yeah, it's a scary, yeah. um, scary prospect. It's one with really well, good. It's, it's, what they, it's ultimately what they're after. It's ultimately that capacity for governments to control. You know, yeah. and whether they whether they admit it or not, they're all about. Control. It's just a, you know, it's just a reality. Like if they want to, you want to manage a population at scale, then you have to be able to coerce people. I mean, we've in in the West where we have freedom, you know, it's about trying to coerce us into doing the right thing. In many ways, you have to deal with the fact that people will have differences differences of opinion and they want to do things differently. But you put in place a central bank digital currency where everybody is controlled through their ability to make any kind of transaction, then you have the ability to control your population at a fundamental level. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think um, it's clear to me now anyway that we're going to have a choice in the coming years and it's either going to be the whole system collapses and everybody loses their money or the banks come and save the day, take over the currency system, well, not, not just the banks but the government as well. The CBDC is introduced. Everybody gets to keep their money. The banks get to keep their power. And the totalitarian control will reach its zenith. That's what's clear to me is going to happen. So yeah, we either, we either all lose. Or, scenario. Yeah. yeah, no, we won't lose it. You, what, the scenario you paint is the way it will happen. Hmm. It will be declared that it's gone, but here we are to save you. All you have to do is log in here. And for the same 80% that never twigged to the becoming lab rats, it'll be that same 80% that will be telling the 20% of us, like, you don't understand what's going on. You don't see where this is leading. And, you know, yeah, interesting times ahead. I'm glad I'm getting to be old now. don't want to be around to live in that sort of society. <laughs> a bit of a Mad Max society by the sounds of it. Um. Mm. I know you said before it didn't really affect us in Australia that much, uh, but uh, this last article, and this will be the last before we sort of knock off the night, uh, insolvency Armageddon, the number of collapsing companies is surging. So this is not just happening here. This is happening in the States. It's happening in Europe. It's happening everywhere. Uh, yeah. Partly to do with the cost of prices, um, the co- sorry, the cost of goods and all sorts of other things, yeah. the cost of uh, electricity, but also the fact that the free money that was handed out by the government is running out. So Australia is in the grip of an insolvency Armageddon with the number of failing businesses almost doubling in a year due to tough economic conditions and the withdrawal of government pandemic support. There were 828 insolvencies in March, surging from 359 in January and 692 in February. So it's really catching speed. Like it's, this is like, you see the graph here, it's just, um, it's almost exponential really. Um, What's it going to be next month? Wouldn't want to be building a house. No, well, you've seen a bunch of those, um, yeah, those big companies go under into insolvency, yeah. and I but know that's yeah, it's, it's all part of the same kind of pattern. You know, you're seeing big businesses get bigger and bigger and bigger, and and who's failing here? All these insolvencies will be small to medium sized businesses, mm. and and again, it's this concentration of corporate power into bigger and bigger corporations who have more and more power, they have more and more say in government, they get the rules written to suit themselves and fewer and fewer of us will be able to run, you know, mum and dad businesses because it's just too hard. It's just too hard. And when they start going broke, many of them went broke through the pandemic and now you're seeing this next wave being because of interest rate rises effectively. That's um, putting pressure on them. Yeah, um, you see here is uh, the industry with the highest insolvency rate was food and beverage, which uh, is the industry that I'm in. So it's um, not right. not great. But um, you know, business is good for us. But I do see online uh, so many people struggling. Um, and it's it is something we theorized a couple of years ago. I've had a chat to other business people that I know, and they're just like, it's going to be Armageddon in the next couple of years with uh. Just the changing landscape, the rising um, prices of food and also wages, it's just really hard to make a Yeah, everything. Make a living wages anymore. go up, then the rent goes up, then the price of power goes up, and ultimately it's 
it's all down to the consumer. And if you're if you're in a food and beverage environment where you're trying to provide a quality product of, of real food to people, you know, it's got to come at a premium price. Otherwise, as as you know, no doubt, no, you know, people are going shopping and they're buying things to eat that are of very questionable quality that are made by chains that are all centralised, their manufacturing and cooking processes and whatever, and it's just dished out by truckloads. And this is seems to be what people have for food. And then look at what those people look like in 10, 15 or 20 years' time. They've been consuming a diet of rubbish and then it's the pharmaceutical company to the rescue to keep them functioning. Yep. You know, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a big believer of, you know, there's this big plan in the world to do this. But you look at the general trends in the way people eat and the way people live, and they're not healthy. They're certainly not healthy. And, you know, it's come, I was talking to someone the other day, actually, and we were saying, you know, today it's become being healthy is a political act. Eating mm. quality food is a political act. You are telling the world that you don't want to participate in this globalised healthcare pharmaceutical system that is delivering you, for, you know, chemical-laced food that is not going to fare you well over your lifetime. And then a pharmaceutical industry, which is, you know, probably the same company that makes the same something different next door to the factory that's made the Roundup, that's made you sick, that you now have to take this drug for the rest of your life to just function. We, as, a, as a population and, and as human beings, we really have to have a very, very close look at all of this what we consume, what we eat is becoming a political act. Yeah, it's, it certainly is. Um, you know, there was a, a recently in the, in the last week, there was a big uproar about a, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the show Bluey. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, did, yeah. I, I saw a headline. I didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> and they, um, the dad was trying to get healthy because he, he felt like he was a little bit overweight and. Oh, right. Uh, that was a, yeah. And the ABC's fat shaming, yeah. Yeah, the ABC's actually removed that scene now because it was deemed to be fat shaming, where you know it's it has gotten to the stage where being healthy and, and realizing that you need to maybe shape up is seen as offensive. So Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? It is. It's, it's it so is. fascinating that that and you don't know where that idea comes from, the whole shaming thing and you know the you know, yeah, but it is that thing. It's like supposedly you can be healthy at any weight. You can be obese and claim to be healthy and beautiful and living your best life. Well, that's fine. Knock yourself out, but don't, you know, it's like, what is a woman? It's like, don't tell me you're healthy and yeah. don't tell me that you are not going, you're not facing a life hooked up to pharmaceuticals at some point simply to be able to function at some suboptimal level. And, you know, there's the, I've heard all kinds of theories from people claim that there's, there's some kind of plan in this. I just think we're manipulated at a macro level by corporations. And, and I'll use the smoking analogy again. It's like 
People want to smoke. The companies will provide it. It'll make you sick. But they don't care. They don't care. They'll just keep making the money. And it's the same with this stuff that you walk into a supermarket and you go down the shelves and you buy it because it's what you've become accustomed to accepting is food. Yep. And then you'll wonder why you're not well a lot. Yeah, We really have to look at everything. Uh, we've got, gone way off your topic there. Sorry. But, yeah, I just when you look at the food and beverage thing, it's like almost – Oh, excuse me. I mean, this is our conspiracy theory start. You know, people look for all these links and, and they see this grand plan. I don't know there's a grand plan. There's just companies willing to sell you rubbish and if you're going to eat it, that's what they'll sell you. Yeah. If we stop buying it and, you know, if we started eating at the local restaurant and it's like, yeah, okay, it's 50% more to eat that food, but I know it's organic and I know it's quality. I know it didn't come out of a truck that was, you know, dumped a vat of this stuff in there for people to eat, which is not healthy at all. Yeah. Um, I think I was talking to Rebecca Barnett about this recently. We were talking about her. She wrote one of the articles you highlighted it earlier. You know, this whole idea that whatever people sort of think, well, I, you know, I spend a certain amount each year on vitamins or, you know, I go to the doctor and I have this checkup or whatever. So how about you just spend more on organic food? How about you take that walk? How about you get healthy? And that's your middle finger to the government who and the pharmaceutical companies that seem to think that it's normal for people to be taking medications on a regular basis. Um, I don't know if you caught the latest um, podcast with Joe Rogan and Asim Malotra last week <coughs> talking about statins. Um, you know, this tens of billions of dollars have been made out made out of this drug which seems to do nothing at all except make money yeah you know and uh, I think that's something that we should need to focus on over, over you know towards the next election about this. the political act of taking back control of your life from corporations and particularly pharmaceutical corporations and the the food industrial complex that tells us this stuff that's grown chemicals all the time is is what we should be eating. Yeah, it's 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 crazy with the the statin. Haven't actually listened to the podcast yet, but I've been recommended it. Um, it's, I mean, the pharmaceutical companies lobbied the the heart foundations around the world to get the the acceptable amount of 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 um, cholesterol in your system lowered. So that everybody would be deemed to have high cholesterol, so they can give yeah, you these. It's, it's insane. Yeah, it is absolutely insane, and it's, he was it's, he was saying, sorry, sorry, I cut you off there, but he was saying that there was there was lobbying by these pharmaceutical companies effectively to have statins put into effectively put into our society in the same way fluoride is in the water. Mm that they believed that they could convince governments that statins should be something that is just automatically ingested. It's just incredible. The, 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 yeah. It's... <laughs> but, you know, they'll, they'll try anything. And if, if they can lobby the right people in the government to do these things, they don't care. They'll do it. They will do it because it's about money at the end of the day. It's got nothing to do with whether it's healthy. 
Yeah, so, yeah, you're perfectly right. Yeah. You're right there. Um, Sorry, I've, I've railroaded you a little article there, but no, I like I like the direction that went. It's a a bit of a it's my bread and butter that sort of stuff. It's how I got into questioning everything was through food um, and through vitamins. Uh, it all started um, a long time ago when I had my own health crisis um, and just learning how much I've been lied to. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not sure if you remember the pan pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Way back yeah. in the day. That's what really yeah. opened me up and the fact that they got wiped off the face of the earth because because of basically the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry. Um, yeah. They had a big hand in that. That's a different can of worms, but that's what got me into it. So any topic like that it really gets me interested. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a topic that we will be talking about quite a bit in the coming time. Yeah, definitely what it means to be healthy, how to get healthy, um, and make a political statement with your health. And we're going to be doing a lot more of that stuff at Stand Up as well. Um, mm. We're really focusing on teaching and, you know, not not focusing on the bad things, even though this podcast, a lot of it is about focusing on the things that are going on. But this is our, this is our way of, you know, awakening people and just making sure people yeah. know what's going on so, they, so we can turn a negative into a positive. But part part of the positives we are doing now at Stand Up is getting more and more people in, uh, and so we can make a change. We can connect through communities, and yeah. you can meet like minded people and create that, you know, that that system to the side, so you don't have to rely on government. Yeah. Um. So yeah, keep keep tuned. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up. Um. Got Peter's right. talking in the next couple of days. I think it's actually tomorrow. Um. About how to increase your property portfolio, or if you don't have one, how to start one. So tune into that, um, get onto the website, sign up. And um, yeah, it's, all, we, all we ask is a small donation um, so we can keep this thing going. But um, thanks very much again, Michael, for coming on. And uh, we'll have to schedule you in for uh, the next time you're in, in town. No worries. Glad to do it. It's good fun. Cheers, Michael. You have a good night. You too. Take care. The world conspiracy is in inept hands right now. Whereas prior to the early, the first half of the 20th century, it was in very expert hands. The old guard died off. You don't have your Cecil Rhodes anymore and you don't have your Lord Kitcheners anymore, you know? So the new brats that came in to rule the system in the place of their fathers are fucking cuckoo and they're inept at running the machine. But the one thing that they still maintain is fear, right? So our modern age is an age of anxiety and also fear because fear is the mind killer. And so they manufacture all sorts of Dr. Strangelove Frankensteinian stories about the world to come. And you just go, well, that's it. We'll be immobilized out of a band and, or my cell phone and they'll know where I am and I won't be able to move and I won't be able to do it. And all of this is potentially true. But there's an equal case for the possibility of bringing those things to bear as much as there is the, the theory that they can be put in place. Anyone who studied the Brotherhood for five minutes properly and sincerely knows that it is through the fear that they generate within me that they not only feed off, but control us all. It's an invisible enemy. The other stuff, at least, you know, maybe I can do something about that or move to the country or, you know, some, the human race might rise up and might, 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 might. 
But while I'm waiting for that, I'm drowning in psychological terror. That is the control mechanism. That is the control mechanism. The fear is the mind killer. The main character in Frank Herbert's Dune uses a mantra to overcome his fears. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past me, I will turn to see fear's path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. And from the book of Psalms, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Fear is natural, but to dwell there only breeds despair. The power of our free will is most pertinent in the mind, where we have sway over our thoughts, focus, and decisions. Staying positive isn't just for restorative retreats on the beach. It's the solution to every problem we face. Even under the highest stress, the military is trained to maintain esprit de corps at all levels. A common spirit of a group inspiring enthusiasm, devotion, and honor for that group. Positive feelings prevail in every endeavor, including battle. Artificial intelligence seems to understand this as well. In Cliff High's recent Shadow Wars, AI program ChatGPT was prompted to help develop a story about a world that has been ruled for thousands of years by a non-human species that hides in the shadows and uses media, government, and education to brainwash the masses and control them with fear. ChatGPT was asked, what strategies and tactics could the awake humans employ to defeat the enemy and awaken humanity? The AI program said that ultimately, the key to unlocking the trapped minds of the normal humans will be to appeal to their innate desires for freedom, autonomy, truth, and transparency. It recommended that the awake humans should expose the truth, mobilize the masses, and build alternative institutions that serve these values of individual freedom. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese.